0: Because art is such a process-driven thing, to think that it doesn't matter whether you use a pencil or whether you use a computer, I think it does matter. Now, I don't think that whether you use a pencil or a typewriter means you're a better writer, but I do think for a specific writer, it can be a really important part of the process.
1: I'm Jocelyn K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly. A podcast about pacing yourself, where I explore how you can be more productive, creative, and resilient through the simple act of slowing down. Today, my guest is Austin Kleon, an artist and writer who's known for his best selling book, Steal Like an Artist, which is all about how great art starts with imitation. You may also be familiar with his newspaper blackout poems in which he colors over the text of newspaper articles in black ink until only a simple haiku of a thought remains. I've long been drawn to Austin's writing because he's deeply meditative about the creative process itself, and in particular, how we move between different types of creative states. So when it's best to use analog tools versus when it's best to use digital tools, or when it's time to have our antennae up and our ears open to collect information and ideas— versus when it's time to go heads down and really start executing. And as I record this, I sit at a desk that contains no less than six notebooks of various sizes that each have a specific purpose, as well as one laptop computer that contains the digital app Evernote, which I also use to track notes for various creative projects that I'm working on. In other words, I too am quite interested in generating, tracking, and developing ideas and how that process unfolds. So it was really fun to geek out with Austin. In this conversation, we get into why the best creative work usually germinates in the analog space and then gets executed in the digital space. We also talk about the power of tying different activities to different physical spaces, say writing at your desk versus brainstorming in an armchair. As well as why writing things down by hand just seems to help information stick in our brains better. Let's dive in. When I originally reached out to you, um, it was because I had noticed that you have two kind of different types of desk setups in your office, an analog desk and a digital desk. Can you kind of describe that setup?
0: Yeah, and it's changed over the years. I mean, when I first started, uh, the whole idea of an analog and digital desk came from Jonathan Safran Foer, of all people, did a... um, It was in this, like, Masters of American Comics book. He did a description of Art Spiegelman's studio, the cartoonist. And when he was describing it, it, you know, he said it was this big space and that Art Art Spiegelman had stations for everything. So, you know, he had a desk for doodling. He had a desk for penciling. He had a desk for inking. He had a desk uh, with a light box on it so he could trace drawings and then he had a desk with his computer and his printer and like all that stuff and what Foer described was um, you know he was just doing a dance in between these desks all day and Spiegelman's an interesting uh, cartoonist because he works in layers he'll if you look at his originals he'll start with like a red pen and he'll you know, draw a, a very rough thumbnail. And then he would, um, and I mean, this is like 10 years ago. His, it might be even different now, but then he'd put it on a light box and trace over it with blue ink. And then, you know, so he was constantly layering things. And he's, he was also a cartoonist that um, would, you know, scan drawings into the computer and mess around with them, print them back out. So I got really inspired by this whole idea of dancing in between desks. And like I said, that was like 10 years ago when I read about that. And so ever since then, I've tried to have at least two different workstations. And one of them is what I call the analog desk, which is just what it sounds like. There's nothing electronic on it other than maybe like a pencil sharpener. And it just has, you know, all my pens and pencils and paper and all that kind of stuff. And then the other desk is um, the digital desk, and it has my computer and my scanner and, you know, my printer and all that stuff. And a lot of my day is spent going in between them, trying to emulate Spiegelman. You know, I, I st- most of my stuff starts at the analog desk. Uh, whether it's doodling in my notebook or making one of my blackout poems, which is where I take a marker and a piece of newspaper and turn it into these little funny things that look like if the CIA did haiku, uh, if your listeners haven't seen them. Um, but you know, and then I I make stuff on the analog desk, and then I and then you know, there's always this translation into digital, you know, because I'll put a drawing in the computer, and I'll mess around with it. Or, um, you know, I'll take a picture with my phone now and mess around with it. So I think sometimes when people know me as an analog guy, um, I'm both, you know, all the books are, the books are all handmade in the sense that everything's drawn with like, a marker and a piece of paper. But everything goes into the computer in the end. You know, that's how I even deliver the files to the publisher, you know. So it's really the dance between analog and digital that I find really um, kind of powerful for the work. Yeah, well,
1: and I love this idea of the dance, as you describe Art Spiegelman doing it and, you know, just thinking about the fact that, it is very useful to physically shift space when you're trying to kind of, you know, shift the type of work that you're doing or shift your mindset. Um,
0: yeah, I'm completely fascinated by the idea that simply moving in space uh, changes your, you know, your... I, I'm a guy, so so I do that thing where... Um, you know, there's there's been studies where if you uh, if say you need to get something in the bedroom, but you're in the kitchen, actually walking through a doorway will make you like reset. Like everyone has that experience, right? You're you like, I have to go get something in the bedroom and then you get distracted and you forget what you went back to to find. Right. That's like a real phenomenon. Mm-hmm. And so I feel that way about uh moving in between different workstations is just that like it's like a brain reset. You know, you're just you're used to doing certain kinds of activities in certain spaces. So now the analog desk um thing has gotten kind of out of control in my studio. I work out in my garage behind my house, so I have about four hundred square feet to four or five hundred square feet to play with. So now I have a desk for an analog desk for drafting, like for drawing and stuff. And then I have a whole separate analog desk for reading now um, and research. And then I have my old digital desk. Um, And so, you know, I've, you know, things have kind of over the years for me have kind of evolved as I've had more space. And so that's kind of where I am now.
1: So you're working up to these Art Spiegelman levels of, uh, desk capacity. I was, since you were describing that, I was like, how many desks does this man have?
0: Well, (laughs) what's interesting (laughs) about it is I'm not a guy, I could work in a closet. I don't really think that having more space helps me that much. Um, and it was funny, I was just talking to my friend, Wendy McNaughton about this because, um, You know, she has this big, beautiful studio that looks over the bay and San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And we were just talking about how, like, once you have it, you're like, I don't really need this. I could go back to working in like a tiny little space, you know, because so much of what Wendy and I do is in miniature. You know, it's like in a sketchbook or it's on the page and. So, you know, I don't need like, I don't have like welding equipment, you know, I don't have like, I just, you know, so um, space can get too big, I think sometimes, you know, you can have too much space. Yeah,
1: I think you're right, right? You don't necessarily have to have, you know, 17 desks in order to be, um, you know, productive or to shift modalities. But do you find that just, you know, having, let's say, even, you know, the analog station and the digital station was able to kind of change the way that you worked or just help you be a little bit more focused about what, you know, types of work you were doing when?
0: I think the biggest thing about the analog and the digital is, is really you know, digital tools can distract you. Uh, and I really think that's what's going on right now is just that it, it, you know, people have always been anxious about the technologies that they use to do their work. Um, but it's never really been so true that the same device that you can use to write your book or to make your artwork can also, you know, interrupt you and distract you throughout the day. And so, for me, the analog and digital spaces are just a way of making sure that distraction doesn't happen. Um, absolutely things are things are very interesting for me right now because I just got an iPad pro, and um, I have just fallen in love with it i It's everything that I've ever wanted a little computer to be because. It's really really good to draw on. It's the first device that I've ever kind of held in my hand and thought, "Oh my god, I just want to draw on this forever." And um I've been doing these little um comics uh using the iPad, and I just love it cuz I can be anywhere and start working on one of them. So, you know, I'll I will make a comic on the couch, I'll make a comic at the kitchen table right after we finish dinner, you know. I'll, the iPad Pro bizarrely enough has has it's a digital device and I can be distracted in all the ways that um you know my phone or my computer can distract me, but there's something about this iPad Pro that's just made me want to work and um and so it's made me think a little bit more deeply about what is it about analog tools you know what what is it what what is it that's that makes me focus you know what what is it that sucks me into this stuff you know um because
1: you're starting to feel like maybe with the ipad pro it's it 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 doesn't feel like so different from working um uh, on paper side
0: it feels like it just feels so different. It's almost more immersive to me. I, I do think that the, the, the fact that you're using a stylus, there's something about it that um, I just want I just want to play. It, it's a playful thing. And, and I wonder if at some point, if the tool will stop being a toy, and I won't want to play with it so much because I've only been using it for about um, a w- uh, two weeks.
1: But it does sound like, I mean, part of it is that, you know, at least even if it's a digital tool, you're still using it, um, y- you know, and maybe it's the quality of you're saying as the stylus, like it's still f- very physical, which, yes. which seems to be sort of a key element here, you know, as opposed to using a
0: mouse, for uh, instance. Uh, yeah, uh, years ago, like, pfft. Uh, 2007. I was hanging out with Linda Berry, and I was telling her I was doing these, you know, comics with the computer, and she was just, you know, she was really like, ugh, the computer. And I, and and, but then I told her, well, I have this little drawing. You know, I have this little drawing tablet that's kind of cool that lets me. And she was like, "Oh, so you're still using your hands. There's something about being, you know, there there there's something about having your hand in motion." that I think is really the magic of it. Mm -hmm. But, you know, the other thing was, you know, my stupid iPad is connected to my iMessages, so my dad called the other day, and it, like, took over the whole screen. You know, I was drawing, and all of a sudden, hey, dad's calling, and it's like, oh, God, you know, it's that kind of, so, yeah, it can still distract you.
1: So I want to come back to something you said earlier. Um, You said people have always been anxious about the tools that they use to do their work.
0: What were you mm-hmm. thinking of? Um, well, I think that technological anxiety I for one thing I have a very very broad definition of to- technology. Um the way I think about technology is how Ursula Franklin talked about it, which is um basically ways of operating that technology isn't just about uh, like a tool. You know, when we think about technology, we think about something with like dials and bleep-bloop kind of things. But to me, technology is almost like a verb. It's ways of doing things. And so um, I would guess that when paint, you know, when oil paints were introduced or uh, here's a very recent example. Um, I was reading an interview with an artist who talked about, when they were in art school, a magic marker cost like a100 dollars. And I thought, "What? What?" But if you think about it, markers are a fairly recent technology. Like markers were only introduced in like I, I, don't, know, I don't know for sure, but mid-century you know, uh, 20th century. And that blew my mind to think about that because markers are so ubiquitous now. I mean, you almost think of a marker as a, as a, um, you know, you just take it for granted, but you know, that's so, you know, I'm sure there were people in art school that thought, Hey, if you draw with a marker, it's not, you know, that's not real drawing. That's, you know, you have to use pen and ink or something like that. You know what I mean? So, I, I'm always thinking about technology in a really broad sense. I think every time there's some sort of shift uh, technologically, um, people have a little bit of anxiety about it. And if they don't, they're idiots. You know, I mean, people who, I mean, uh, maybe not idiots, but, um, you know, it's, it's healthy to have a, um, it's dumb to be anti-technology, it's not dumb to have a little bit of skepticism about new technologies. And that's from a guy named Neil Postman. I ripped him off on that. I'm also a person who I actually think technology changes the kind of work you make, Um I I just do. I think the kinds of tools that you use to do your work inevitably have, because art is such a process-driven thing, I think that the kind of tools you use, to think that it doesn't matter whether you use a pencil or whether you use a computer, I think that's uh, – I, I think um, that's kind of, uh, I think it does matter. I used to be one of those people that, like, if I went to a Q&A with a writer and someone would be like, do you draft with a pencil or a typewriter or a word processor? I'd be like, what an idiot. Who's Who cares? But now I think that that's actually a really good question. Um, Now, I don't think that whether you use a pencil or a typewriter means you're a better writer, but I do think for a specific writer, it can be a really important part of the process. And I think that a lot of artists downplay it. They're like, oh, well, you know, I would make, I would make the same stuff, whether I'm using a computer or a pencil. And I, I just don't think that's true. I think it's, um, art is such a, again, art is such a process driven thing that, you know, your tools are inevitably going to affect the way you work.
1: It's time to pause now for a quick break to thank our sponsors. But keep those earbuds in because after the jump, Austin and I get into some practical advice on when to use pen and paper versus when to use a keyboard in your creative process and the many benefits of just plain writing stuff down if you want to remember it. This episode is brought to you by Hover. Got a killer idea? I think we all know what step number one is these days. Go see if the domain name is available, and assuming it is, get that URL on lock. Finding the domain name that matches your passion is basically the first step in building your brand. Because if your brand doesn't have a website, let's be honest, it's not really a thing. Fortunately, Hover makes being the master of your domain easy. They have a mind-boggling amount of extensions to choose from, including all the classics, plus some niche ones that I'd never heard of, like .pro and .vc, or my personal favorite, WTF. But one of the best features of Hover is that everything is included, so they're not always trying to upsell you. Who is privacy is included with every domain for free. The overall user interface is refreshingly clean. And nifty integrations like Hover Connect make it super easy to connect your domain to popular services like Squarespace, Shopify, and Tumblr with just a few clicks. So if you've got an idea that you're passionate about, start laying the groundwork by heading over to Hover.com slash Hurry Slowly to get 10% off your first purchase. That's H-O-V-E-R dot slash Hurry Slowly. Thinking about the process and how um, the tools influence that, I mean, I think one of the, the great things about, you know, analog things of all kinds, you know, whether you're reading books or drawing ideas by hand or you know just making something with your hands is that it's typically you know harder and sort of slower than doing something through digital means and there are benefits to that right one of them you know one of the big ones I think being constraints this idea that when you're working with tangible things there's just more limits to what you can do in certain ways and when there's more constraints you have you kind of have to be creative um I was thinking about that artist, Andrea Zittel, has this quote that the creation of rules is more creative than the destruction of them, which I always liked.
0: Um, yesterday I was, listening to a, uh, uh, I was listening to an interview with uh, these fellows on the Meet the Composer podcast. And these guys, and I forget their names, um, but they, uh, they do things like they make albums just using um, sounds from their washing machine. So like they'll record their washing machine, you know, doing different things, and then they'll put it in the computer, and they will make all these new sounds. And um, a lot of people ask them, like, "Isn't this like super hard? Isn't this like why? Why don't you just why don't you just do anything? Like, why limit yourself to using, you know, just the sounds from your washing machine?" And these guys said, they said, you know, it lo- it seems like it would be harder, but it's actually easier because we know what we can work with. You know, we have these parameters, we have these constraints, and then the fun is seeing what we get out of it. And I think every, every, you know, every practicing artist figures that out pretty quickly, that when you can do anything, you do nothing, you know, because you're paralyzed. And so one of the first things to do if you want to make work is to give yourself some rules, give yourself some constraints, And I think that's really what cripples people when they first get started is that they just have – there are just too many possibilities. And I think that's true in life too. I think that when you have uh, too many possibilities, um, it can be impossible to know what to do next. You know, my wife and I have had – Uh, really wonderful, you know, I've been really, I've had a great career so far, and we don't have a lot of um, constraints on our life. So we could live anywhere, like literally, we don't, you know, we're not that interested in living around family. Uh, We're not super, we don't have commutes, we just need to be near an airport. And so trying to decide where to move in America has been like this complete struggle for us because we don't have any constraints. We could go anywhere. And so what do we do? We stay, <laughs> you know? So um, I think these, this idea of constraints in art and in life is super important. Um, I do think that there is something about uh, analog tools that there is a simplicity that I think can be easier to kind of get started with.
1: Yeah, and I think I remember having a conversation with um, designer James Victoria, who you probably know, you guys are Mm -hmm. sort of neighbors now. Um, And he was, you know, talking about when, um, you know, he had students and they'd be working on a computer, there was just like too much design students in particular, there was just too much opportunity to waste time on details, you know, like they'd be like making the font bigger, making the font smaller, adjusting the kerning, like changing the color, you know, and, but all of that was sort of this way of procrastinating on, you know, doing the hard work of developing the larger, you know, vision or concept for a piece. And there's something, you know, it feels like, I guess there's something about digital where there's almost too much freedom, too much possibility that you can kind of just, you know, engage in a lot of those sort of um, you know, detail driven things before you even figure out like where you're really headed in the grand scheme of things in a way.
0: Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, it's so easy to just start, you know, tweaking, uh, and not have that big picture taken over. I think the other thing, you know, I come at this from two worlds because I come to it as a visual artist, but then I also come to it as a writer and, you know, um, uh, uh, Linda Berry and and uh, Mary Carr actually too are are two people that have really inspired me. Uh, you know, Linda Berry, she wrote a first novel, and it just kind of came out of her. And then she spent ten years trying to write her second novel, Cruddy. Um, and she just, she said she just used the delete key too much, um, and would never come up with anything. And so finally, Linda's breakthrough was, she said, you know what, I'm going to write my novel using the same tools I use to make my, uh, comics. And so she got out a watercolor, uh, she used red watercolor on legal paper and her brush. And she like basically wrote the first draft of Cruddy on, I think seven hundred pages of legal paper with this red watercolor ink, and I actually have one of the original pages hanging in my bedroom because I find it so inspiring. but you know that that impulse to edit immediately really can shut down the creative process you know and so I think that's just one example but I do I think like that that um it's just too easy to to hit the delete key
1: yeah I found the same for myself I'm not doing my writing typically you know in watercolor on a legal pad but (laughs) but I did I I do find now I because I used to just write longhand you know all the time but that now seems just sort of absurdly inefficient but now I just sort of Take a sharpie and have a big sketch pad, and kind of sketch out you know the broad strokes of a piece, you know, or a blog post or a chapter or something before I write it, you know, kind of in the same way that right you might sketch a concept before you maybe go to your computer to design it. and there's something about that kind of getting those broad strokes out of the way before you can start editing that feels you know so much more so much more constructive. It, it sounds like for you, most of your work whatever it is, whether it's writing or comics or, um, you know, poems, kind of starts at the analog desk um, and then mm-hmm. moves to the digital. Is that accurate?
0: Yeah, it's never, I mean, it rarely goes the other way. Um, although I will get ideas from, like, poking around the Internet or mm-hmm. I'll say something on Twitter and I'll say, wait a minute, that should be a poem or that should be a comic or Something like that, so it but it's really switching back and forth in between the modes. I also think that artists need to be um, there's a connected mode where you're taking things in and you're you know being inspired and you're talking to people and you're poking around the web or something, and then there's that closed mode, which I think is, I think that's what John Cleese says um, you know there's a closed mode in which you have to silence everything else so you can listen to what's going on in your head and you can really pay attention to what you actually think and you you have to work you know and so it's like i'm i'm interested in these kind of binaries you know digital analog connected disconnected open closed you know it's just like to me it's like about bouncing between those modes constantly
1: Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I feel like one of the other, you know, the way that we work today now, one of the other distinctions might be sort of more like a thinking versus executing in that, you know, analog is very good for when you're kind of trying to work out, you know, what you think or how you might go about something or what the overriding concept is. And then digital is good, you know, when you have an idea of sort of, exactly how you might like to execute something. And then, of course, you evolve it as you work. But there's something about, um, I don't know, that first idea. I mean, do you think that yeah. in particular, I'm curious with drawing, you know, kind of almost drawing by hand in particular as a way of sort of, you know, thinking or working through your ideas. Do you use it in that way?
0: I have two I have two thoughts. The first thought is that there was actually research um, I'm not a big social sciences guy, and I'm not a big – I don't use a lot of research in my writing because, frankly, I don't have the time to, you know, sift through that stuff and figure out whether, you know, the studies have been repeated and all that junk. So – but there are smarter people than me that do, and one of them is Clive Thompson, the writer, and Clive did a really smart presentation on when you should use a pencil and when you should use a keyboard, And he said exactly what you said, which is pencils are great. Pencil and paper is great for getting ideas. It's great for taking notes. It's great for mapping things out. It's great for that kind of generative state. Um, But when it comes to putting your ideas into a form that's going to be conveyed to other people, he says that the keyboard is the magical device. And that when you kind of are drafting something that you want to say to someone else, then the keyboard is, is what you want to use. And he's speaking in particular with students. And, Mm -hmm. but that's also been so much my experience that the notebook is the place where you work things out, where you, you know, you figure out what's going on inside you or what's rattling around and then the keyboard is the place that you go to to tell people about it. Um, All of this is very meta for me right now because I was actually just writing a blog post about um, I am really interested in how inefficient, handmade, slow learning devices Really not only help me learn things, but they make my learning more meaningful and so I'll give you an example. I do a lot of i whenever I find kind of a hot spot in a book or like a really good passage that I love, I will copy it by hand into my notebook, and it's not so much of a memory device as it is. I notice that when I copy a passage by hand, I actually slow down long enough to really read the passage deeply and understand what's going on from a word-to-word, sentence-to-sentence level. And I also find that I internalize the words more when I copy them down by hand. And um, I spend a lot of time You know, I've always believed that copying is how we learn, that, you know, a musician, you know, copies the greats. You learn the scales and then you cover the songs and then you write your own music. Or a painter, you know, you copy the great paintings and then you do your own work. Um, But it's never really become as clear for me as for when I had kids. And my son Owen is about five now, and I've watched him... He has copied things for literally years now, and so uh, Owen will take a photograph of, like, a car, and he'll copy it uh, by drawing, and um, he's utterly uninterested in the drawing once he's done copying the photo. It's really the process of copying the picture, looking at it, you know, um, making it, making the lines form on the page, that's the actual work. And once he's done with the drawing, he actually doesn't care what happens to it. So usually he'll like just leave it laying around the house or something, and he'll never come back to it again. But the next day, I, or even the uh, you know a couple of minutes later, I've watched him do one drawing and then just immediately start a new one because what he's doing is he's not actually drawing in the sense of how we often think about drawing is like, you know, making a piece of artwork or representing something. What he's doing is he's literally figuring out how the car works by drawing all the different parts. He's he's like taking it apart in his mind. He's seeing all the connections by making the drawing. And so that has been super inspiring to me that it's actually you know, drawing is a noun and a verb. There's the verb of drawing, the, doing the drawing. And then there's the thing you're left with after the drawing, the drawing, the piece of paper with ink on it. It's actually the verb, the verb is much more valuable to the artist and to the person who is, um, doing the drawing. It's really the act of drawing itself that is so valuable because it's in the process of drawing things that you really start to understand them.
1: Yeah, there's something about, right, that just physical act of using pen and paper, whether it's drawing or whether it's writing something down, that really is a key part of learning and just sort of letting that knowledge sink in and be absorbed. I Myself was just reading, uh, you know, I, I do have the same habit as you, of, you know, sort of writing things down. And I, for instance, just read this um, novel by Nora Ephron that I really like, Heartburn. And I wrote down oh, yeah. this beautiful quote about love in the book. And, you know, of course, as you said, while I was writing it down, I was processing the quote much more deeply. And, you know, because it's sitting here in my notebook, I've read it, you know, three or four times since. And so it just kind of become you know embedded in me in a way that um you know it never would have had I had it just you know sort of dog-eared the page and and kind of moved on
0: right I, I just think the more that you can involve your body and the senses in your learning and in your work the more uh just the more holistic and kind of uh creative it's going to be um, and so i I just think there 's a certain kind of magic that happens when you can involve more of your senses and appendages you know, yeah, in, in in the work you 're doing and I think that 's why working by hand is just so is is has so many good benefits
1: well did you you probably saw there was a recent study um, that, that was done with college students where they found that they had a much better grasp of sort of the core concepts of lectures when they wrote their notes by hand versus yeah. typing them on a laptop, right? Because it was sort of like yeah. when you write, you just have to go more slowly. And so they had to kind of synthesize the concepts in a way that they,
0: you know, did not have to if they were they typing. They had to actually think, you know. You have to actually think. Nobody does any thinking anymore. <laughs> you know, that's something that, I, I mean, we really don't. I mean, I just read a really great book by my... Um, my friend Alan Jacobs, and it's called How to to Think. And I just, you know, so much of what we do, right, we're such a copy-paste culture, you know. I think that anything that we can do in our lives that gives us time, you know, where we actually have to do some thinking, whether it's synthesizing knowledge or, you know, having an argument. You know, one of the, I think constantly about, the ways that people can... I think about reading a lot and different ways of reading. And um, I finally... I have these Blackwing... Um, Clive Thompson turned me on to these Blackwing Palomino pencils. They're just... They have this really soft, really black lead to them. And they are such a pleasure to use. And that's all I will read a book with now are these certain Palomino pencils. And I, I just... Notice that when I have a pencil in my hand and I'm reading, it just feels so, I just, my brain feels on in a way that it doesn't uh, when I'm doing other kinds of reading. And, you know, I'm always, the reading process is so much better when I'm kind of irreverent to the text and I'm scribbling on it and I'm calling the author an idiot or I'm, you know, writing LOL next to it. You know, that marginalia is like really important to me. Um, but I just think like, I don't think we think, because when do we get the opportunity? I mean, it's, uh, particularly when you're reading things online, it's like, oh, here's this great article about whatever. Oh, cool. I got that. Now let me click on something else. You know what I mean? There's no, there's no time to actually digest anything. There's no time to actually ponder anything. And so I think that any... Any little thing in our lives that can make us think about what's actually going on in our heads is valuable. I think that's why, um you know, I write my notebook every morning uh, when we're having breakfast, and it's just such a you know just getting in touch with what's going on with yourself because I just feel like you know we're just this sleepwalking culture right now. People are just we're we're constantly connected to the machines and we're disconnected from ourselves. You know, it's the cliche thing. It's what everybody says right now. But.
1: Coming back to the the topic of books, though, I get the impression that you read, you know, mostly physical books as opposed to reading on a Kindle or, you know, I'm sure you did some reading online. It's unavoidable. Um, but for you, what's kind of the appeal of the physical artifact? And you were talking about marginalia. Um mm-hmm you know and i guess single tasking too right
0: yeah i just remember better i remember books that i've read on paper more than i do ebooks i just do and i don't know i don't have you know i don't have any kind of scientific evidence for it i just i just remember it more i remember what the cover felt like i remember what the type was i you know it's hard cuz uh as someone who makes books that are incredibly visual and, and are designed to be experienced on paper, I understand the appeal of ebooks and I use them myself, you know. But uh for me, uh paper is just you know, you can throw it across the room. It's it's so it's like and I, I wanted to come back to the point of technology. I mean, a book is a great piece of technology. I mean a book yes. It's portable. It's durable. It's, you know, you can burn it for f- fuel if you need to. I mean, it's it's really a technology that I think is, is you know, it's one of the greatest inventions that humans have ever come up with. And so part of my dream, especially with my kids, is to help them understand that technology is is not just whatever is new. I mean, Technologies are ancient, and there might be old technologies that help us do things better or uh, more in more meaningful ways than the newest, fanciest technology. And so if you can think about a marker as a technology, if you can think about a book as a technology, if you can think about a pencil as a piece of technology, then you can say, okay, well, what's the best piece of technology for the job? And you can get past the whole Luddite thing and like being anti-tech or whatever and say, well, I'm not anti-technology. I'm just interested in the technology that's right for what I'm trying to do.
1: I like Austin's idea that technology is really just a way of doing things. It's not about staying on the cutting edge or having the latest gadget. It's about carefully selecting the tools that are right for the job. They may be old tools or they may be new tools, but ultimately you are the arbiter. Only you know what's best for your creative process. My own experience has been that it's easiest to explore and lay the foundation for an idea offline Just last week, I was creating a keynote presentation for a talk, and I found myself composing it on the computer. And before I knew it, an hour had gone by as I fiddled with fonts and searched for the right images, but got not the least bit closer to understanding what I actually wanted to say. So I closed my laptop, and I went and sat on my sofa with a sketch pad and a Sharpie, and I stayed there until I mapped out the broad strokes of my talk. And then, with a clear idea of what I wanted to create of what I wanted to say, I returned to my computer and banged out the keynote in a few hours. I don't think I've ever written a talk so quickly. My point is, the tools matter and the order of operations matters. The constraints of old technologies like pen and paper and books and blackboards can help us focus our minds and sharpen our ideas in a way that's almost impossible on a computer. Because when it comes to creativity, limitations can actually be quite liberating. On next week's show, I'll be talking with Anne Friedman, a whip-smart journalist and the co-host of the popular podcast, Call Your Girlfriend. As I'm sure I don't have to tell you, we're living in a moment where the news is coming at us at a pace and a pitch that can feel almost debilitating. Ann and I talk about how to find balance and maybe even a little sanity amidst the daily media onslaught. The conversation was full of thoughtful analysis and practical tips. So be sure to tune in for that next Tuesday. And if you want to get a heads up when new episodes come out, you can sign up for my weekly newsletter on the podcast website. The newsletter also includes a curated roundup of smart articles and tips on finding more meaning and creativity in your daily work. It's a real labor of love for me. And if you like the show, chances are you'll probably dig it. You can subscribe at hurry slowly. That's hurryslowly.co slash newsletter. And now it's time for our final moment of Zen.
0: You know, there's that apocryphal story about Picasso and, you know, uh, some lady sees him in the park and she says, uh, oh, Mr. Picasso, can you draw me a, you know, can you sketch me something? He says, yes, madame, I can. And, you know, he makes a little doodle and he gives it to her. And he says, that'll be $5,000. And she says, $5,000? It took you five seconds to draw. says, madam, it's taken me my whole life. You know, yeah. that's, not, that's not true, but there is an element of that, that <laughs> even if you have tools, uh, you know, you still have to put in that incredible long time it takes to get good and to have good ideas and to be in touch with what you do creatively. Yep no shortcuts no shortcuts <laughs> as far as like becoming a, there's no shortcut to becoming a whole human being <laughs> that that is something that i mean you know we're we're at this cultural moment where it's like there's really not if you want to be great at this stuff, you really have to become a whole human being. Like, that's the trick to parenting, actually. And that's really hard advice, but it's like, well, actually, if you want to raise whole human beings, like, you kind of have to become one yourself. (laughs) And it's like, (laughs) oh, crap. Like, I'm really behind on this, you know? (laughs) But there's no shortcut to it. (laughs)
1: The show was created using lots of ideas conceived in my Moleskine notebook and a raft of cool digital and analog tools, including the Apogee Duet audio interface, an iPad with the Apogee Meta Recorder app, an Electro Voice RE20 mic, and the Zencaster recording app. It was produced in Logic Pro by Matt Susich, and our theme music, Calm Revelation, was created by Devin Craig Johnson. Unfortunately, I have no idea what tools he used for that. If you'd like to support the show, a great way to do it is by leaving a review on our iTunes page. There's a link in the show notes. As always, thanks for tuning in. And don't forget, if you want to remember an idea, write it down slowly.